Hey, Chicago Fire and Major League Soccer fans, welcome back to Feed the Fire, a Chicago Fire podcast. We are talking all things Chicago Fire, Major League Soccer, and now League's Cup, the new tournament here sanctioned by CONCACAF, pitting Liga MX against Major League Soccer. We're going to get into that in the second half of the show. But in the first half of the show, as I promised you last week, I admit the Fire have turned a corner in their season after beating Toronto 1-0, winning five of their last six matches, they have absolutely turned a corner. I still think they're frauds. I don't think they're for real. And I'm going to get into that as we review this Toronto game and hear also from our special guest, John Donovan, and what his takes are on the state of things Chicago Fire. But first... Before we get into all the fire content here, I have a favor and a rant. My favor is if if you could please share the show, share the podcast, share the YouTube channel with your friends, with your family. Let's continue to grow the conversation around the fire and around the sport here in America and bring other people into the community and into the conversation. And yeah, help grow the show a little bit as well. All right. That was the favor I wanted to ask. Now here's my rant. So many times over the last few days on social media have I seen Chicago Fire fans throwing out foot mob and sofa score ratings of all the players in Chicago against this game in TFC saying, how great was Miggy Navarro, or not Miggy Navarro, yeah, Miguel Navarro, how great were all these different players throughout the course of the season? I think foot mob and sofa score are doing to soccer what fantasy football did to the NFL. And that is fans are focused on goal production, on assists, on offense. They're ignoring so many different players that aren't quarterbacks throwing touchdowns and wide receivers catching touchdowns. They're ignoring so many players who are doing the grunt work on the pitch and just not scoring goals or showing up on the score sheet. I saw so many people say Jonathan Dean isn't it. He had a terrible game. And that is just awful because they saw something they didn't like and it matched their sofa score foot mob rating. Jonathan Dean put in work in this last match against Toronto and was applauded when he walked off the field. So that is one tiny example of why I think you have to really look at how they're building their statistical analysis, these these websites, and how just like any other advanced statistic, it's just part of your analysis. It's part of your conversation. It can be a jumping off point, but it can't be the start, middle, and ending of who's the better foot mob or sofa score. Now, I understand too, yes, some fantasy football leagues do allow you to pick defenses, and there are some leagues out there that even let you pick your entire lineup, all 22 players plus special teamers. But that's that's not what we're talking about here, right? We're talking about the general stuff that most fans are getting into. Now, let's dive into that a little bit deeper. And this was for my education and for yours as well here. According to their website, the foot mob player rating is calculated based on more than 300 individual stats per player per match from Opta. And from what I know, Opta is probably the, the top, if not one of the top statistics gathering companies out there. 
A match in the per-match ratings is any match the participant has been involved in, even if he came on as a substitute in the last few minutes. A player must have played at least 50% of all matches in at least 90 minutes for the per-90 stats to be included in the rankings. And I think that's more of a general league-wide ranking or, or just the team rankings, not that individual match, right? Obviously, the last line. So FootMob bases their scores on Opta statistics, okay? How about SofaScore? Well, if you go to their blog post about how they do the ratings, it's even less specific than that. They pretty much go out there and say, we have become as objective as possible. We take out the human element of analysis. All it is is we're looking at the numbers that are put in, which is why it takes us at least 10 minutes to get a score going for any player during the course of a game. So they're, they're very, very general in their uh, explanation of how they come up with their numbers. But what you can learn from them is pretty much no one's going to get worse than a six. And very, very few players are going to be approaching like eight, nine, even 10. I, I think they said Mo Salah one game had a perfect 10 because I think he had a hat trick, had all these successful progressions, dribbles, take ons, whatever it is. Um, and, and he ended up with a 10. But typically you're going to see players between six and eight. So once again, you have an entire spectrum of technically it's one to 10, but every player is going to score between a six and eight. So how useful exactly are those scores? And that's why, in my opinion, and this is why I wanted to dive into it a little more, I thought that offense would just tip the scale. That you score a goal, you're going to end up with an eight or a close to an eight, at least a seven, depending on how well you do the rest of the game. You know, and a lot of people were ripping on Kutsius in his last performance out against Toronto, and he got pulled at halftime. Again, helping justify it, he ended up with a 6.1, and most of the fire players during that game were in the mid to high sixes. Miguel Navarro, because he had the game-winning assist, ended up with, I think, an 8.5, the highest-rated player in that match, um, according to FootMob. But he also, if you dive into some of the other statistics, high-passing uh, completion percentage, a lot of progressive passes, but also some good take-ons and tackles. So he did get rewarded with that high score for some of his defensive actions. And that made me feel a little bit better about how they rank their players, that defensive positions and actions are taken into account, at least in some, uh, in some form or other. But now let's take a look generally and see if it's expanded out over the course of the season. Looking at SofaScore, their season averages for fire players, their highest rated player is Miguel Navarro with a 7.03. So according to SofaScore, if you just said, I don't know who's the best player on the Chicago Fire, according to SofaScore, it's Miguel Navarro. Then it's Jared and Shakiri, and Chris Brady is third. And you know what? Maybe... Maybe given how many saves and goals he's he's prevented, um, I don't know if there's like a, a goals above replacement type of statistic there, um, but Chris Brady actually might be that high up the list. But here's the thing. You've got Miguel Navarro rating the highest on the fire. Um, number 20, Jonathan Dean. Number 19, Spencer Ritchie. So again, very limited moments for him, U.S. Open Cup uh, games mostly ended up cracking the top 20 of every fire player who is qualified this season. But now let's look a little bit further down that list. Number four 
is Rafa Chijos, 6.93. So he's only 0.1 behind Miguel Navarro, but still four spots, three, four spots below him. Then Gaston Jimenez, Brian Gutierrez, Marin Haile Selassie for the seventh spot, Fabian Herbers in the eighth spot, Tehran nine, Casper Shabilko is your 10th highest rated player on the Chicago Fire over the course of this season, according to SofaScore. Now, that also kind of makes me feel like goals aren't as heavily weighted as I theorized they would be because you've got Kai Kamara, your leading scorer, in 11th right there. He's behind uh, Shabilko, right? But at the same time, if you're looking at the defenders, Rafa Chijos and Carlos Turan are excellent defenders by any major league soccer team standards. But Chijos has a couple goals this, this season. Turan even has a goal in that Miami game where he scored. He was the highest rated player um, despite having average defensive statistics and the fact that the fire gave up two goals uh, during that match. By the way, that did take a highly Selassie butt goal and an own goal for them to win that game. So again, take these ratings with a little bit of a grain of salt here. Um, so that is an indication of where sofa score can kind of skew things. By the way, speaking of skewing things, Kendall Burks is 14th on the Chicago fire because sofa score is including that U S open cup game where Burks scored two goals against the Chicago house and had a number of excellent plays, he ended up with a 9.1 rating that game, which is completely throwing off his average. So again, you need to understand the context. These numbers are great to start or contribute to the conversation, but you got to remember the context of them and how they're calculated. Now let's broaden this discussion a little bit more and talk about MLS league-wide SOFA score ratings. Their number one player this season in MLS so far is Lucas Zellerayan with a 7.76 SOFA score rating. Now running through your top five, it's Zellerayan, Diego Almada, Carlos Hill, Hector Herrera, and Ryan Gauld. Ryan Gauld is the fifth highest rated MLS player according to SOFA score. And those top five go from 7.76 through 7.64. So again, very, very narrow. Your number five through number 10, Lucho Acosta, Ricky Pusch, Pablo Ruiz, RSL, Christian Espinoza, San Jose, and Jesus Ferreira. So that's your five through 10. All good players, but do you really think Hector Herrera, Ryan Gauld are, are that much better than Ricky Pusch, Christian Espinoza, or even Jesus Ferreira for all his goal scoring? So again, maybe it's not as heavily weighted as goal scoring as I thought, but the fact is there's such a narrow window between number one and number 10. It's only 0.4. Without a deeper understanding of where these numbers come from, what are you going to say? Hey, Lucas Zellerian is, is nine rankings higher than Ferreira. Are there other players you would put in between Zellerian and Ferreira that you think Ferreira might be the 10th best player? So again, be careful when you say he's the 10th best player and equate it with a SOFA score or a foot mob score. Okay, that's kind of the end of my rant. I'm going to get off my soapbox. I just wanted to make sure that everyone kind of gets an understanding for these things since they are becoming so much more prevalent in the soccer conversation, which is awesome. It spurs further conversation. It spurs further analysis, and people really dive into it like I did a little bit today. 
but please make sure it's all within the right context. And again, you can't equate a foot mob score, a sofa score in a particular match or throughout the course of a season with how good this player is in that particular moment or across the league. Getting back to our Chicago Fire conversation now. The Chicago Fire defeated whew, a struggling, and maybe that's the wrong word to use. It's not strong enough to describe Toronto FC. A struggling TFC in their ridiculous-looking third kits, or are those their fourth kits? I don't even know. As I was conversing with someone on Twitter, TFC has three kits. None of them are red, despite they're called the Reds. And I was like, yeah, I totally get it as a Chicago Fire fan. We're the men in red, and we don't have a red jersey anymore. Let's bring it back. Anyway, I digress. The goal was scored by Casper Shabilko in the 90th minute on a great cross from Miguel Navarro. And, and what more can I say about the goal? Shabilko needed to score. Otherwise, he may have never seen the pitch again this season, or at least do something productive. Navarro needed to show that him pretending to be a winger or thinking he's a winger is actually going to pay off eventually. And the fire just needed a goal. You can't draw at a home to a terrible TFC team. They got the result by the skin of their teeth here. And once again, though, it was a statistically and eye test, very mediocre performing by the fire. It was about 50, 50 possession split. The fire had 12 shots, only five on goal. Passing was better, 85% passing completion rate, 457 total passes. So they were maintaining a little bit more possession in their defensive third, not just springing counterattacks. Only six corners, though, but they did have 25 crosses. So they were trying to uh, get into the wings and play some crosses in or play some long balls from that central third. Two offside, they only won 47 uh, duels, whereas TFC won 53. So they lost lost the duel battle. They lost the tackles battle 14 to 8 as well. So not as good of a defensive performance. Um, however, Toronto only generated 0.6 expected goals. So that's as much as the Chicago Fire not playing well as it is TFC not playing well, right? Or the Chicago Fire playing just better than a bad TFC team. 13 clearances, 11 fouls, one yellow card, and no red cards. Um, so the Chicago Fire, again, statistically speaking, were very evenly matched with a really bad Toronto FC team who didn't have any of their best players. But what is the theme that still remains? The complete lack of offense or persistent, consistent, persistent and consistent offense by the Chicago Fire. So... Casper Shabilko's goal had about a 10% chance of going in, according to the expected goal models, and the team generated one expected goal, and they actually got it. Okay, great. But of their 12 shots, the best chance they had was Jairo Torres's blast that ended up looking like he was kicking field goals in Soldier Field. Um, that one was given an 18.32% chance of scoring by the models, that was their best chance, and it was pretty much Jairo Torres finding space and blasting a shot. So, again, the fire had 12 shots. None of them were quality shots. I would say a quality shot is anything over 25, maybe 35% chance uh, of going in and giving you, like I said, a 0.25, 0.35, or 0.4 even uh, expected goal. So the fire are not generating it, not generating offense, has been a theme 
the entire year. Now, with some further analysis of the match, we're going to turn it over on the podcast side to our featured guest, John Donovan. For those of you on YouTube, you'll get a short three-second break, and then we'll pick back up with whether or not I think the Chicago Fire have are actually for real or are they frauds? And I've already alluded to that in the intro, so I hope you were listening, enjoying the little teaser there. But without further ado, I'm going to turn things over to John Donovan. Take it away. John Donovan here talking about the Chicago Fire and the MLS. Nick, what a game. I uh, If anybody clicked off on this game at the very end, they missed a classic. A last-second score by the Chicago Fire got them a one nothing win, which really is kind of a streak for this team. I, uh, I'm caught between, personally, I'm caught between the Fire winning, which I like, but I desperately want to get rid of Klopas and the squad that's running the team. So the longer this run goes, the harder it is for Joe Mansueto to make the move that has to be made, or we're going to be stuck again next year with uh, unbalanced team and so forth. But the team did win, and I've got to hand it to Klopas. He didn't get it right, but he kept trying. He kept trying all the way. He made his final two substitutions with two minutes to go in the game. And of all people, a guy that probably should have been thrown off with a red card and a penalty kick, Miguel Navarro crossing the ball, brought it back on the head of Casper Shabilko and scored with about 30 seconds to go in the game. And, and it really was exciting. I mean, the end of it, I saw people really dragging at the end of the game. It, it was hot. It was long. Um, but the fire, Navarro came down strong. And Casper had just been put into the game. So it um, it came out on their side. Now, the guys that I thought really played well for the fire, they were key guys. I mean, this Selassie guy, um, he was a great move with uh, from Switzerland. The kid is fast. I mean, he is what I really envision MLS teams look like. Fast, speedy, clever, um, young. That, that makes a big difference out there. Gutierrez and Selassie are just dynamic to watch, I think. Um, you know, Sijos had a wonderful game. I thought, you know, there was a couple of plays. He was against Kerr, who's leading uh, Toronto in scoring, and he had a couple of moves that were just really excellent. So he had a good game. And Dean, um, you know, they Klopa started Dean on the right side instead of Suket. And Dean had one heck of a game. The kid can play. He doesn't make stupid errors. You don't see yellow cards out of him. He he just seems to be a strong player. So a source of our uh, players, I think, in the future should be this USL League that you got to have players like Dean that are floating around in there. Shakiri had a good game. I mean, he, he literally, I mean, as I see him, starting to come along he seems to be taking responsible responsible for the team he's a designated player i mean he should be and you know the guy that i've been pushing to get started and i'm pleased that he's starting especially with the rotation is kutsias i don't think he had the best of games he uh had a couple of crosses that he should have had his head on or his foot on and he missed them it wasn't one of his better games but I certainly hope that Klopas stays with him. The rotation goes well. He's got a lot of speed. He's a young man. 
You bring in Kamara after him and then maybe back it up with Casper at the very end. That way you've always got a lot of energy up front there. Um, you know, I don't understand this Toronto league I, team. I just, you know, they had all the discussions. They had Brady. They had Kay playing for him. They went and got uh, a great goaltender. They brought in Lorenzo Insigne. They brought in Federico Bernadeschi. They brought in all of these great guys. And did we see Insigne was sitting on the bench hurt again. He's played a total of 11 games this year for all that money. Um, he's really not playing. I mean, he's obviously the team's in last place or almost last place. So has he done much for the squad? No. And Bernadeschi, I mean, they turned uh, mutiny on Bradley. So that kind of uh, backup you just don't need on these MLS squads. You need them to play like a team. Now, this brings up the question what is Miami going to be like with Messi? You know, they brought in a good center uh, midfielder along with Messi. You have um, uh, Martinez up front, but will he play with the team? We've seen other superstars, not at the level of Messi, come over, and it's taken them a long time to get used to this league. These are professional players that they're playing against. It's not that, you know, Messi, of course, is extremely good. But he needs assistance to make that Miami team work. And they don't have a good balancing act down in that in, uh, in the South. I've been to that stadium. It is going to be so exciting to be. And they call it the Pink Stadium. It is going to be just wonderful to be there. I'm looking forward to it. How would you like to be that first Mexican club that comes in and plays against uh, Messi? Be real exciting. Now... Going on to the game, our other DP, our other two DPs, Torres had a wide open shot. And again, you know, a pro should always be able to get the ball down, at least within the arc. And Torres had a beautiful shot. It was a cross from Selassie. He skied it. I mean, I, I really, he's had one good game. I think it was against Kansas City, but he just... For a DP player, Klopas doesn't seem to have a lot of uh, uh, respect for him. I, I really, the game, I don't, you know, Toronto did start the game without all those superstars, and they played C.J. Sapong the whole game. Now, this is one of the older players in the team, and he just, you know, he used to have speed. He was a rough guy. He doesn't have that anymore. Um Toronto probably is a team that's going to have to be remade for the future. It's kind of sad. When they were good with Bradley and all the rest of those guys, it was an exciting team to watch. It's not that way anymore. It really isn't. It's uh, it's sort of a sad situation, especially since they built that brand-new big stadium up there. So the Fire are walking now into this, uh, this crazy playoff where they are going to be playing against the Mexican squad. I like the whole idea of the Mexican squad interplay with uh, with MLS. I'd like to see it in the future where they mix games up that counted against their scheduling or against their own league uh, results. That, to me, would be wonderful. I'd love to see Chivas, Cruz Azul, Americas coming into Chicago every year. It certainly would make the atmosphere wonderful. So uh, one other thing. Terry Dunfield, come on, don't look like a bum out there. You don't even look like you belong on the soccer field with a pair of old jeans and a sweatshirt. Very embarrassing for the MLS. 
Okay, Nick, have a good night. Um, Mike, hope you're listening. Toronto does not look good, Mike. Take care. John, thanks again for your contributions every single week. Hopefully you're enjoying the season a little bit, despite the fact I think the fire are not for real. And I'm going to get into that right after I remind you all that our show is brought to you by Skira Icelandic Spring Water. Icelandic for clear, Skira water comes from a spring in a government-protected nature preserve in Iceland with naturally low mineral content. This isn't your average water. Clearly, pun intended, it's one of the best, and it is available at your local 7-Eleven, and I really do encourage everyone to go out, pick up a few bottles, get ready for the summer heat wave, have one with you at your summer barbecue, so, you know, every couple beers that you have, every couple drinks you have, you got a bottle of skewer right there to keep you hydrated. And you know what? That's a great conversation starter to plug the show, to fulfill the favor I asked at the beginning of the episode. Oh, hey, what are you drinking? Skira. I heard about it on the Feed the Fire podcast. Go grab a bottle at your local 7-Eleven. Now, as I mentioned, the fire have turned a corner, but I still don't think they are a for real team. They might make the playoffs, but two thirds of the teams in the Eastern Conference are going to make the playoffs, right? Nine of 15. Um, is my math wrong? Yeah, it's about 60%, right? Nine of 15 teams are going to make the playoffs. So making the playoffs was the goal by the Chicago Fire at the beginning of the year, but that's just how low their goals and expectations were with this team. Wow. Now, I still don't think they're going to, and oh, and by the way, despite winning five of their last six matches, um, and, and I've put asterisks on all of those wins because Portland was injured, Kansas City rotated, they got smoked by Orlando 3-1, to one, so that wasn't one of their wins. Um, they beat TFC, catching TFC without any of their best players. They beat a bad Montreal team. Um, yeah, so the Fire are catching all these teams at the exact right time. Now, they do have to take advantage of it, right? They do actually have to win the game, and they and they are doing that. So I will give them that fact. But we said they don't generate offense. I think they're closer to the team that lost to Orlando than the team that beat Montreal, despite winning five of the last six, they're still in eighth place, and they don't look like they are playing cohesively as a team for stretches. I'm not even going to say 90 minutes, but for stretches. You have moments where you'll see Suke to Selassie uh, to a striker. Suke to Selassie to Shakiri to Selassie to a striker, you know, or getting in. You'll see Gutierrez and Shakiri try to link up. You'll see... Like last match against Montreal, Gutierrez and Kutsius were really working together very well. Or you'll see Tehran, Chihos, Brady communicating with each other, Suke getting back into a defensive position, allowing Tehran to overlap. Things like you, you see moments of that during the course of games, but you don't see it for 20, 30 minutes. Even in the TFC game against a bad TFC team, Toronto had 50% possession, even against a bad Montreal team. Montreal had somewhere near 50% possession, if I recall. And Montreal created a lot of opportunities to score goals, including penalty kick that they put off the post that might have changed a little momentum of that game. So the Fire are not a cohesive team. They produce just enough moments to beat the bad clubs in MLS. I forget they did get a 1-0 victory against Nashville who is currently sitting in third place 
in the Eastern Conference. So I will give them credit for gutting that game out against Nashville. But again, Nashville was without Walker Zimmerman, who was on a red card suspension, I believe. They were without a couple players for international duty for Gold Cup. And Hani Mukhtar sat out the first half and came in the second half. So again, the fire catching teams at the right time. The other indicator for me, too, is when you look back at Kansas at that Kansas City match, um, Peter Vermees didn't yell at all. So he really didn't. That, to me, that shows he didn't care about the match against Chicago. It was a non-conference game, and he didn't start a few guys who you would typically see starting. He didn't yell once. As bad as Kansas City's finishing was that game, and they could have beat the fire 4-1 to that match, he didn't yell at all. He didn't get upset on the sideline. To me, that tells you Vermees really didn't care about that matchup. Where I'm torn on the fire, I'm, I feel pretty confident in saying they are barely beating bad teams they need to generate offense and play as a team. That we haven't seen for them. I'm fairly confident in that. Where I'm torn is interim manager Frank Klobos. Now, by all accounts, he does not want the head coaching job. So I'm, th- I'm thankful for that. I do not want him to be the head coach. I don't care what any what happens this season, whether they win a trophy or they end up losing every game from here on out. I don't want him to be the head coach. He has been the one constant with this franchise over the last decade of mediocrity to terrible play. Now, but the other thing about him is he really doesn't do anything to improve the team from my observations. And I would love to hear everyone's thoughts about this. So message me, find me on Twitter at glasshouse soccer, no E on soccer. Thanks. Twitter handle limits or email me glasshouse soccer at gmail.com. So here's what I'm hearing in my counterpoint, right? Frank Lopez is a great man manager. Look what he did with Shabilko. He benched him, sat him out, didn't have him in the lineup, brings him in at the exact right moment. You usually don't, don't see multiple striker substitutions in the game. Took off Kutsius, puts in Kai, takes off another player. I don't know if it was Herbers, puts in another striker, and Shabilko comes through a couple minutes later in the 90th with the goal. What great man managing. Okay, now my counterpoint to that is it's not great man managing. He has to change the lineups because no no lineup he's put together, even Ezra Henderson has put together, actually is generating any sort of consistent offense. And he has to put in certain defensive players because the defense is really banged up. Speaking of the defense, we mentioned Kendall Burks before. Definitely gave him too many minutes. He's not MLS ready. He's not MLS week in, week out ready. Um, also, he's still hesitant to start Kutsius, just like Ezra Henriksen was. So you see Kutsius was getting runs of minutes and, and improving slowly and building some rapport with Gutierrez. And then, oh, he has a bad half. I'm going to bench him at halftime. Also, he's giving Jairo Torres a lot more meaningful minutes now. And, of course, he couldn't give him as much due to injuries. But when Jairo is healthy, he's not fitting in with this squad. He's playing centrally. He's playing winger. Gosh, I'm surprised I haven't seen Jairo Torres been played as a striker or a wingback by Frank Klopas at some point. He's So I don't think Klopas is man-managing as well as everyone thinks he is, rather than just it's a product of him trying to figure out what to do with his roster. Also, the people praising Frank Klopas are saying he's letting the offensive flow. It's giving them a lot more freedom. The players can kind of dictate the game. We're not stuck in a rigid system like Ezra Hendrickson, where everything had to be th- built build in the middle, get it to the wing backs, play the ball into the channels, you know, playing like the style that Ezra Hendrickson had success as a player. And, and, and Klopas has gotten away from that and everything's flowing fine. 
I'll agree with you that he is giving the players a lot more space to operate. And that thankfully he's gotten away from everything has to be on the wings and crossing, crossing in. Cause that's giving Gutierrez and Shakiri a lot more opportunities to showcase their talent. So I'll give Klopas credit in moving away from a rigid offensive system uh, or, or demanding a certain offensive system. But on the flip side, we talk about it week in and week out, how terrible the fire are at generating quality offensive opportunities, key passes, shots, shots on goals, expected goals. Oh, and just actual goals, right? They, they are not a good offensive team. So in that case, People latch on to a win streak and say, oh, Klopas is doing great things for the offense. The Fire have only won, I think, two games this season by two or more goals. Um, so the offense cannot be – so any offense cannot be credited to Frank Klopas. I think the stats show it, and I think the eye test shows it. And if a coach really had an influence on this team, like people are praising Klopas for, you would see it in – in certain game states, in certain in certain build-up play, maybe not in an entire you know tactical ninety-minute formation setup, but you'll start you would start to see, hey, in this situation, we need to get the ball into the corner, or we need to play direct, or things like that. You're not seeing that. You're he's just kind of letting players rely on their own talent and what they're seeing on the field, and maybe that's his brilliance. Maybe I am missing the boat on that, and maybe that is what's making. Frank Klopas is a brilliant coach here, but again, you're not seeing any development on set pieces offensively or defensively. You're not seeing him have certain designs drawn up um, for certain game states. By the way, I know they did score that beautiful set piece goal from Shakiri against Montreal. That's the one that to me is the exception that kind of proves what I'm talking about here that he you've had those in your back pocket. And if you hadn't, why haven't you, but you've had those and you can't figure out when to use them. Why would you pull out your best set piece when you're up two goals early on against Montreal? Maybe you figured you can't hold the two-goal lead, which, yeah, that's typical of the fire, right? So those are the kind of things where where I will say, look, yeah, I, I get where the glass half-full people are coming in and praising Frank Lopas. I don't see it. I'm not convinced of it. Maybe that's just my own problem. Maybe I have been hurt too many times, and maybe the people I'm interacting with or seeing are brand new to the Chicago Fire and don't have 25 years of hurt, or you know, at least those few years when they weren't winning U.S. Open Cups, right? That many years of hurt from the Fire or just Chicago sports in generally. And the last thing I'll say about Frank Lopas, you know, people say, "Oh, you got to let Frank Lopas cook." Most of the time, in fact, all of the time. I am 110% in favor of letting the Greeks cook. I just don't think he's cooking up much on the training or on the game pitch. Now let's look a little bit forward into the MLS schedule. Usually I give some notable matches, but the big ones coming up, All-Star Game Wednesday, July 19th, preceded by the Skills Challenge. So make sure you are looking for that, enjoying that game. We've got Captain Lucho Acosta. we got Head Coach Wayne Rooney. We've got Arsenal as the opponent. Should be a great event. And the next fire match coming up is actually their League's Cup matchup, July 27th, against Minnesota United. So now let's take a look at the League's Cup. A couple little nitpicky things I got to put out there. Again, this is the negative curmudgeon old man in me. I, in the commercials, the League's Cup is saying, we'll crown the champion of the region. Okay, well, we have Champions Cup. We've had Champions League. And the tournament between MLS and League MX 
it's a little presumptuous when you don't give any other clubs a chance. Though I get, I get, it's only been MLS and Liga MX for the last decade or so, but still, still pay a little lip service here. And also the other nitpicky thing with Lionel Messi actually being announced and formally signing his contract and becoming a part of Inter Miami, I really would have liked to see his first matchup be in his first match played be an MLS game. I mean, he's eligible to come in and play in the league's cup matchup. I'm sure they're going to throw him out there, even if it is just for like 15 minutes at the end of the match, you know, or start him and sub him off at halftime, just because how can you not right? greatest player on the planet, if not of all time. And everyone in that stadium is going to just hate your franchise forever. If they paid and showed up to that game and didn't get to see Messi play. I just, from an MLS-centric standpoint, I would have liked to see him make his debut in an MLS match, not in a League's Cup competition. But speaking of League's Cup, for those of you who don't know, this is a new tournament. It's between Liga MX and MLS, and it's officially sanctioned by CONCACAF, which is going to have some implications, I'll tell you in a minute. But what it is, it's it's a tournament. League uh, MLS League is pretty much on summer break for this tournament, right? It involves every MLS club and 18 Liga MX clubs. They're broken into four regions, North, South, East, and West. Uh, There are 15 total groups, so four groups and three regions, and another another region with three groups, and every group has three teams. Pachuca and LAFC are not in the groups. They advance directly to the knockout round, the round of 32, by virtue of LAFC being the defending MLS Cup champs and Pachuca uh, winning the last Liga MX part of the season, the Clausura, I believe. I don't know if they had been the champion of champions winning Apertura and Clausura, but at least they won, uh, I think, the Clausura. So what I like about this tournament, now it, it is a tournament format, which is fun, which is exciting. It really has coaches coming up with new strategies, managing their squads, looking at depth, which is a little reason I'm not too excited about the Chicago Fire for it because they don't have much depth. Um, but the other thing is there's no ties. You win a game, three points, you lose a game, zero. If you draw, now think NHL, think American hockey. If you draw, each team gets a point. You go straight to penalty kicks. Winner ends up with three points then. And then in that case, the team who lost in PKs still gets a point. As I mentioned, it's an officially sanctioned tournament by CONCACAF. And the reason that's important is because CONCACAF has restructured their Champions League club tournament, right? It is no longer CONCACAF Champions League. It is the CONCACAF Champions Cup. It has expanded. So the top three teams in League's Cup will qualify for the CONCACAF Champions Cup. The champion goes straight into the round of 16, and the second and third place team uh, go into the group stages. So that means that third place game has a lot riding on the line for these clubs. And I love it's another way for clubs to qualify for the Continental Tournament. Now, Chicago's first match is at Minnesota United, and then they are hosting Puebla. Minnesota United, we know them a little bit from MLS, but the one thing is they have been rejuvenated. They have found offense. They have found a little hop in their step with the return of Emmanuel Reynoso and the addition of striker Timu Puki. So they have a much more potent offense And Minnesota's coming in with a decent run of form. Two wins, two draws, and a loss in their last five. 11 goals scored, eight against. And in one of those games that 
they won. They scored four goals, and in one of those games they lost, they gave up four goals. So if you take those those outliers out, then it's seven four goals four four against. So still about the same ratio. Um, so Minnesota knows how to score, uh, but they can also be a little leaky in the back if the fire can take advantage. Now, Puebla is just starting the Apertura part of the season. So for those of you who don't know, Liga MX is kind of like two mini seasons making up their big season. The Apertura runs from like July to December. So it's like summer, winter. And then the Clausura runs from January to May, I think. So you've got like a, a winter, spring, and then that way they're off like June, July, the hottest part of, of the summer. So they've started with one draw and two losses and a minus four goal differential. So Puebla is not off to a good start. Um, on the one hand, they've lost to some good teams in Liga MX. But on the other hand, they are not generating offense either. And hey, maybe that's a great matchup for the Chicago Fire, right? Uh, the Chicago Fire, or I'm sorry, Puebla has generated three expected goals in three matches and they've actually scored three goals in three matches. So um, they, they do not have much offense going for them. Um, averaging about a goal, like one expected goal and one actual goal per game. So, Hey, maybe this is a good matchup for the fire. That being said, the fire should get out of this group. The top two teams of every group advance and we'll go into a round of 32 and begin a bracket knockout stage there. So the fire should advance. I think Minnesota wins this group where there's trouble is if the fire cannot beat uh, Puebla, if they somehow allow Puebla to get on the score sheet early. Uh, we have seen traditionally in CONCACAF champions league, again, it's some of the better Liga MX teams that are qualifying, but the Liga MX teams usually are outperforming MLS teams by a wide margin in those last 10 to 15 minutes of each half. So if Puebla can score early or keep it close, they have a chance of stealing points against the fire. When it's penalty kicks, anything can happen, and that they could knock out the fire from this tournament. But the fire should get out of the group, and the only other wild card factor at this point is, are the fire going to go for it? Are they going to take it seriously? Are they going to rotate some players throughout these couple of matches? It is only two group stage matches. I say you go for it. I want to see them go out and put their choice starting 11 against Puebla, especially to see how they match up against the Liga MX club. And then if you get into the knockout rounds, do you treat it like the U S open cup of, eh, maybe we rotate the first game. And then if we win it, we bring in our starting 11, but I don't think you can do that because the competition is much better than the first couple of rounds an MLS team would play in U S open cup. And we've seen the fire who still have trouble even in those situations. So I think the fire have to go for it. It's only two games to begin. You can reevaluate once you advance to the knockout rounds, who you're playing, where you're playing, when you're playing. But let's go for it. Let's see some excitement and action. Now, with that, fire fans, with that, Major League Soccer fans, gosh, we could keep talking so much more about other notable matchups, about Leo Messi coming to MLS and what that means, which, by the way, I think Messi is going to be just fine in Major League Soccer, it's going to be a lot more difficult than people think it is, especially people overseas. Um, the MLS is a physical league, and you have demands on your players that aren't there in other leagues, such as travel, accommodations, congested schedules, uh, things of that nature. So I think he's going to need an adjustment time, 
but because he is such a talented player, such a smart player. And I think Miami, knowing that this has been their plan for however long, uh, not to mention also getting Sergio Busquets, he has been announced, he has been signed. Um, so there's going to be a little bit more margin for error for Messi, having some better teammates around him finally, uh, at least from a Miami perspective, Miami finally getting some better teammates around Messi. Um, but he is still so smart and such a good player. I think he will be just fine. I don't think he's going to roll in and score 20 goals. I don't think he's going to embarrass every club. And all of a sudden Miami is going to go from worst tied for worst in the league with Colorado to a home playoff game, but he's going to find success. And gosh, I would watch out for him once he gets an off season to adjust next year. So with that, friends, Fire fans, Major League Soccer fans, and just fans of the sport, I want to thank you for tuning into the Feed the Fire podcast, brought to you by Skira Icelandic Spring Water, available at your local 7-Eleven. Please share the podcast, the YouTube channel. Let's continue to grow the conversation. And as always, let's go fire. Fire.